Well, this is episode eight, we think. We're, we're probably going to get like 100 episodes in and be like 12 episodes off on our numbering system. But neither us nor anyone else will ever know. And if we get to 100, no. if we get to 100, we should feel proud of ourselves, even if the math is, is off in the end. So we talked about consciousness last time. Our last episode was sort of introducing what we feel like consciousness is and what it does. And then ultimately, we got around to the question of, is it worth it? Is it worth going through the process, the hard work, the pain, and the, the, the strain, really, of becoming conscious? Would it not be better to just go to sleep, so to speak, go to sleep to ourselves, go to sleep to our experiences and sort of turn off, turn that dial down on consciousness so we don't have to experience all the pain that comes along with it. And that was a good episode, I think. That was a good discussion if you if you haven't listened to it. Today, I want to go through Eric Neumann's description of the history of consciousness, because that's how we got this topic started. We were talking about Eric Neumann's book, The History and Origins of Consciousness. Eric Neumann, for reference, is one of Jung's best friends, was one of Jung's best friends, and one of his protégés, and one of his apparently one of his toughest critics or adversaries. I think they went back and forth a little bit on ideas, which I would imagine was very rare for Carl Jung once he was out from under Freud's shadow. There probably weren't too many intellectual adversaries for him to spar with, but it sounds like Eric Neumann was one of those guys. And he wrote The Origins and History of Consciousness, which I just finished. And it's just an extremely dense book, but but it's absolutely fascinating. So he lays out – it's not historical in the sense of necessarily timelines like, you know, 1,000 BC, 500 BC, but he lays out the myth, the mythology, the archetypes that go along with each stage of consciousness and how each stage of consciousness – produces in the world a corresponding set of myths and a corresponding set of religious practices and rituals and culture and all the things that go along with it. And again, just for reference, we're, when we talk about myth, we're not talking about made-up stories. We're talking about the narratives that guide people's belief systems throughout you know, human throughout all the human stages. So yeah, we're talking about something that makes a truth claim. That's better. Better said. Yeah. 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 So, all right, Nate, I want to, I'll go through this sort of the symbolism that Neumann lays out. And you can tell me if you think this makes sense, if this resonates with you or, or what sticks out to you about the way Neumann puts this together. All right, let's so, do it. So he, he introduces the topic with the Euroboros. So that's O-U-R-O-B-R-O-S, which I'm, I just learned today how to pronounce it. Euroboros. 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 That's it. Euroboros. 
the Euroboros. <laughs> it's this image of a, the circular snake eating its tail. So you've got the tail of the, of the snake in its own mouth, and it's this circular symbol. And I didn't make notes of all the all the places that this symbol shows up, but Neumann goes into great detail. Apparently, this sort of circular snake, sometimes it's a dragon, a self-contained, this sort of self-contained animal, this self-contained circle wheel shows up in all kinds of cultures all over the world throughout history. Peoples and places that would have no access to each other to share mythology, according to Neumann. So he, his claim is that this Euroboros is the symbol of unconsciousness. It's this self-contained, like timelessness, this like non-beginning, this 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 symbol that had of 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 non-existence, really, like no beginning and no end. It just is. It's this, it's just this reality that's contained. It was never created. It will never go away. But it it's represented as a feminine, as this womb as the origin from which all things are born. So this snake eating its tail is this circular, timeless non-existence. It's the, it's like sleep, it's the womb, it's essentially the great mother. And it's feminine, not because the snake is female. It's feminine because it's like a womb where all things are birthed out of it. It's the original source. It's not, it's not necessarily the ground of being, but it's like it's existence itself from which consciousness will eventually emerge. So it's unconsciousness. It's a womb. It's what Neumann calls the great mother. But it's this timeless womb where there is no differentiation. There's no light and dark. There's no young, old. It just is without age, without any differentiation, with, with no opposites, just one one reality. So that becomes symbolized, the Euroboros becomes the symbol of the great mother, of unconsciousness. And, and unconsciousness becomes symbolized as the great mother, the womb. It's like the belly of the whale, the bottom of the ocean. It's the, it's the beginning. And so once man, that initial birth moment of consciousness when man becomes aware of himself when man discovers that he is something different than the world that he is somehow delineated from what's around him it's me and then it's you or me and then the world then he emerges from the womb it's like this it's like the seed germinates and then sprouts out of this Euroboros womb, but it's a, it's like a phallic, it's like a phallic emergence, a protrusion and a bursting forth from unconsciousness, that moment when man experiences himself. And so the ego is born and the ego becomes like this, like the seed, the sperm, and it's phallic and it becomes masculine. Again, not as in male and female, but is in represented in these terms of feminine and masculine. 
the ego consciousness emerges as masculine and the unconscious is represented as the feminine snake eating its tail. But what happens is, and what Neumann shows in the mythology of the ages is that that first ego that germinates, that first uh, awareness that man has of himself is like super feeble. It's like not strong at all. It's not certain of anything. It's just this little inkling of me and the world. And so the pull, there's this great mother. The unconscious is this like powerful force. And so the unconscious is trying to pull back, pull the ego back into unconsciousness because it's so feeble and frail and, and new that the temptation is for man to just forget about himself as differentiated and to go back into the great mother. But the symbolism of that ego emerging, what the symbolism that comes along with it are the opposites. Immediately you get day and night, like that's the, the image. We get this, we get this, this hero, this man who is literally separating this, like the day from the night, the sun from the moon. He's like doing the work of creating the opposites because the first thing that happens when he becomes aware of himself versus other is that he becomes aware of day versus night, light versus dark, male, female. He becomes aware the next, he becomes aware of opposites. Once he differentiates himself from the world, then he starts differentiating all of the different components of the world. So you get this, you get the, the raw sun god of Egypt. Like that's the initial, the first god is the god of the sun. It's the god who puts the sun in the sky as like the first symbol of consciousness is light. Light becomes the first symbol of consciousness. And you get the sun gods, every, I mean, every culture, every religion, every people group has, the ancient people group had a sun god, like the primary god. Even the Greeks have the, I don't, I'm not good with Greek mythology, but the one who pulls the sun up in the morning, who drags the sun across the sky. Is it Apollo? Apollo? I don't know. But then you've got, then you've got the, the biblical creation where, where earth is separated from sky, light is separated from dark, water is separated from land. That's the first thing that happens when man becomes conscious is the opposites emerge. And you get these heroes and gods and mythical, mythical uh, characters who then create these opposites. They create, they, they separate the light from the dark. They create, essentially they create male and female. They create heaven and earth. That's another fundamental one. So that's like the first, chronologically, the ego germinates from the Ouroboros becoming somewhat conscious of himself. And then all of a sudden these opposites emerge and then the, the narratives come in to explain the opposites. Does that make sense? Does that, does that track? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm with you. So, so then, and this is where it gets, this is where the stories start to get interesting is the, 
the young male ego, because the ego is represented archetypally as male. The young male ego is tempted then to go back to unconsciousness for the same reasons that we talked about last time. Like it's just easier to live in the unconscious. It's more difficult to do the work of creating, separating night from dark, light from dark, night from day. So, and the pull of the great mother is so strong that you get this, you get Oedipus Rex, you get the, 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 the baby who is separated from his parent, the, who, the king in Oedipus Rex, the Greek myth, the king removes the child because he's, the child is a threat to some far off land. When the child grows up, Oedipus Rex, when the child grows up, he comes back, meets the king, doesn't know he's the king, and kills the old man, not knowing that it's his father and not knowing that it's the king. And then because he defeats the old man, he takes the queen as his wife. Well, the queen is actually his mother. He doesn't know this. So that's the, the Oedipus Rex story. And Freud has always – Freud made this myth about sex, about incest, and it was like this – the mother fixation and all of these complexes. He invented the Oedipus complex where it's like every you know, – his theory was like every small boy fantasizes about having his mother be his wife. As, as like a toddler and into until adolescence, basically. And then you have this complex where you're like looking for your mother in your wife, but you, you're not conscious of it. And Neumann is like, the, no, that's, that's so stupid. <laughs> Neumann's, Neumann's like, no, it's conscious. It's a, it's a metaphor for consciousness. Like Oedipus Rex is the, is the germinal ego, the initial ego that's fragile and and is tempted to go back to unconsciousness to go back to the infantile state it, it's the temptation is to go back to being an infant where you're cared for by your mother the temptation is to to blind yourself to the world and live in that sort of it's it's a death it's like a peaceful death it's like this this temptation to drift into a, a peaceful non-existence and the myth is oedipus rex is represented as the ego and that characterized a whole stage of human development like the initial stage of human consciousness was oedipus rex it was that fragile germinal ego who wanted to like go back who wanted to who was tempted to pull back from adult consciousness into an infantile unconscious does he does that do the, you think those dots connect yeah <clears throat> yeah here's the here's where where i'm going as you're talking i tried to bring up garden the garden of eden and adam and eve a couple of weeks ago and you told me i was getting ahead of myself that we would get there and as I start thinking about origin stories, obviously this is going to be the one that's like most familiar to my context, right? Is, you know, the story in Genesis about the creation of, or the stories about the creation of the world. And 
there are there are some really interesting similarities, obviously, and then there are a couple of like key key differences that I think that I think are worth talking about. But you you can rein me in if I'm just if I'm just pulling pulling it out of left field. No, so go ahead. first of all, first of all, it, the the journey of Oedipus that you just described as the journey of consciousness, right? So to, mm. to like take it to, to, to emancipate it from Freud and reframe it as a journey of consciousness, returning back, you know, and, the, and then eventually the, the desire to fall back asleep or to fall back into whatever that, whatever that thing is, you know, um, it, it, so if, if we parallel that to the story of the creation, the creation stories in Genesis, it's interesting that first, like the description that the the authors of Genesis use for what the world was before it was anything is, what is it? Formless and void. Yes. Formless and empty. Formless yeah. and empty. Formless yeah. and void. That, And then it's really strange language that the spirit of Yah, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters of the deep and darkness, darkness covered, covered everything. So we're both describing its form and its characteristics and also say, and, and also saying that it has no form and that it's empty. Right. So we're, we're like immediately embracing this contradiction on the surface, but, but what we're really talking about is, is nothingness, right. Of like, of a thing, like a thing exists, but it's nothing. Right. Uh, and so, so I think those two, I think those track, the second thing that I think is interesting is for the for the the Genesis creation stories it doesn't begin with the woman it begins with the man and from the man according to the story woman emerges she's formed whereas in the consciousness in the what is it ouroboros in mm-hmm. according according to that map it's first the the feminine and then the masculine emerges as consciousness out of the feminine. So, so I thought that was like an interesting deviation. The next thing that I thought was interesting, Matt, is if, if we parallel these two is to think about the Genesis creation story. It's really fascinating. If you take like the first few chapters of Genesis and instead of thinking about it as this like idyllic paradise and place all of this emphasis on sin separating us from God. And like, there's, there's some Christian story that we have to know about this. If you, if you read it as Yahweh, as Yahweh creates something out of nothing, and then Yahweh also is becoming self-aware in relation to human beings becoming self-aware. So Yahweh now has a new other to differentiate Yahweh's self from. And if you take like through the fall and really into like Cain and Abel, and you read it as Yahweh trying to figure out the terms of the agreement with humans, Yahweh is negotiating with humans, right? Like with Cain and Abel, Yahweh makes a point and makes a pronunciation and then gets talked out of it. And if if you see the arc of the story as... Yahweh and humanity becoming self-aware out of nothingness as they encounter one another. Then you see like expelling, expelling human beings from Eden, from this idyllic, right? This idyllic shalom, this idyllic safe environment to 
a world full of stimuli and threats and otherness, um, then I think it can track with that early with that 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 consciousness myth in in that way, right? Where rather than rather than Adam and Eve breaking the rules, the arbitrary rules that Yahweh set up, and Adam and Eve break the rules, and then Yahweh says, "Well, let's just go back to the way it was before." It's a conscious conscious decision to say, "No, we're going to we're going to move forward into." the the next experience of humanity based upon the choices that the conscious choices that we've made now that we're all aware of one another's existence does i think i just covered a lot of ground and i pulled a lot of that out of my ass but i think no you're it on the works. Right. in yeah, some 100%. ways it can really work yeah because i think we're if we read it if we read genesis the beginning you know first few chapters of genesis as like, okay, here's the first account. Here's the oldest account of God, like, making laws. And how do people respond to God's laws? And sin and punishment and separation. Like, I think we miss what's, hap what's actually happening in the story. Because you have, it's, it's, it is, it's the origin of the world of consciousness. Like the first couple of chapters are how the world emerged through consciousness. You've got this non-existent – Genesis is trying to describe non-existence as best it can in the deep and the void and the formless. It's just this sort of chaotic nothingness, but there's no such thing as nothingness. So it's just – it's the deep, and it's the, it's the womb. It's like the belly of the whale. It's like neither death nor life. But then God organizes it, separates, and and makes order from the chaos, and then puts man in it. Okay, so here's the here's the male female part of this. You've got man just sort of unconscious, just following his instincts. Adam is just following his instincts. Well, then the woman. God says it's not good for man to be alone. So Eve shows up. God creates Eve, and she makes Adam self-conscious. The, the feminine females make males self-conscious. That's what they do. Like in the presence of the feminine, in the presence of females, the male becomes conscious of himself. Like what am I like, am I all of a sudden it's like, am I doing this right? Is it, you know, how does my hair look? Like, you become self conscious. So, Eve brings the consciousness to Adam. And, and they say that the word for Eve is not really helper, but it's like a help. The, the, the Hebrew word is like set against, it's like a help set against. She's like set against him in order to make him more conscious. And so it is a paradise. So that you've got this garden of Eden that is a paradise, but it's not, but it's like pre-consciousness. And so when they eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and all of a sudden the opposites emerge, 
like naked and clothed, alone, together, all of the good and evil, because they ate of the fruit of knowledge, then consciousness takes hold and everything becomes polarized. They, see, they can see the difference between male and female. They can see the difference between naked and clothed and good and evil. And then uh, they're probably not – like Adam is probably not changing what he does when he gets kicked out of the garden. But because he's aware of his own mortality, all of a sudden farming and working the ground becomes like terrifying. It's like if if I if there's a drought, I die. If I don't dig this hole, I die. If I don't find if it doesn't rain, I die. All of a sudden work becomes work. All of a sudden gardening went from being a part being just sort of instinctive in harmony with the universe. Now it's work because of consciousness. It's survival. Right. That, yes. It goes. It goes from. It goes from my role as part of the larger idyllic universe that I'm a part of to I must now survive. At times, in spite of or set against the universe. Yes. Like when there's a drought, I still have to make this world work for me. Whereas before, he's just an animal. There's not even a. There's not even a me. It's just like just like a bird or a dog, just looking for the next meal, or you know, hiding under a tree during a storm. There's no worry about. There is no life and death in the mind of Adam before the fall. There is only. That's that's so weird. Right. That's yeah. It's so weird. It's hard. that's why we miss that's why we miss it that's why we miss that part of this like the main part of the story because it doesn't even make sense I'm, I mean it does it makes sense but it's it's it is weird and so all of a sudden once you can see the end of once you can see the end of your life and and you fear it then work becomes painful then it's like I I I have to do this to survive and I I hate this this is so hard and I'm so scared of not of dying. And so the whole story is, is just an emerging consciousness. And basically what the sin is, what the sin is, uh, this is, this is speculation, but the sin is that Eve is trying to take, tries to take all of consciousness onto, to herself at once. She tries to take, she tries to take, and that's what God is saying. Don't eat this tree because you're not ready for this fruit. You're not ready to take on all of this knowledge. It will give you anxiety and fear, and it will ruin your it will ruin paradise for you, is basically what he's saying. If you eat this tree, it will ruin paradise because you're not capable of integrating all of this knowledge right now. And the, the interesting thing to think about is, did God have a plan for gradually bringing about consciousness in, in his own terms and timeline for, for Adam and Eve or for, for early man? Because we, all we know is that Eve just hijacked the process and bypassed whatever 
speed bumps that God had put in the way. And she tried to take it. Was, that, that's the pride. The pride is that I can, I can handle it. I can handle this, this, the size of this download me within my own cognitive abilities. Just give it to me. Just down, give me the download, give me the update. There's not going to be any bugs. There's not going to be any problems. Well, all of a sudden, our hardwire just short circuits. It's just anxiety, fear, depression. And then we try to go back to that's why that's why we try to go back to the garden. And God is the the, the angel with the flaming swords is not it, it's symbolic. It's you you can't go back. You can't get in there. Like you unless you die. I mean, unless you want it, unless you want to, to physically die, you can't get back to the. You can't go back to the old operating system. You can't go back to unconsciousness once you've eaten the fruit. You can't undo the opposites. You have to now go through consciousness to get back to unity. You can't undo consciousness to get back to unity. There's a there's an angel there with flaming swords. There's no there's no there's no way to get through. Yeah, I, I think there's an element of this story as it relates to consciousness that also has to do with Adam and Eve's interaction as after they eat the fruit. And then that extends to the way that, to the questions Yahweh asks Adam and Eve. So, um, so Adam and Eve, when they, they both eat the fruit, right? And, and think about how funny this consequence is, Matt. Out of all of the things that they could become conscious of or aware of, they realize they don't have any clothes on. <laughs> in the entire universe. Yeah. This whole I this whole paradise in Eden. And what do they notice? I'm not wearing any pants. <laughs> Where's my pants? Yeah. It, it's it's that they they suddenly become aware of their own being. Mm -hmm. And as I was, I was tracking with, with your description of Neumann and the, the, this myth of consciousness that, that I, I don't know if you said opposites, but, or contradictory elements, uh, but basically something other than me mm -hmm. emerges. And out of that, I learn more about who I am. I become more aware of my being that as Adam and Eve eat the fruit look at each other and suddenly they get embarrassed. Mm -hmm. It's not just that they realize that they don't have any clothes on. They get embarrassed. So there is a feeling that is related to, to me specifically, to my, to my awareness of my body. Mm -hmm. What they didn't do is laugh at the other one for not having any clothes on. In other words, their thought is directed to the self. Yes as it stands in front of the other. Yes. Suddenly I have this knowledge of who I am as I stand in front of, or in the gaze of the being that is across from me. That is not me. Mm -hmm. It's self. It's that kind of like self knowledge, self, I don't know, co consciousness. Right. And yeah. then think about the questions that Yahweh asks Adam and Eve because because they freak out, they go and hide, and Yahweh is, I mean, it's just, Matt, it's such a 
like a funny, brilliant, weird story. Yahweh is walking through the garden. He's strolling through the Garden of Eden. Um, and he asks Adam and Eve, where are you? Now, and, and the, I think I think the story probably suggests this, that that the interaction is like Yahweh is actually searching for them. And it may even say that explicitly. I should go back and read before I like say what's happening. But But what if we read it a different way? What if we read it as Yahweh just as is Yahweh asking Adam and Eve, do you know where you are? Hmm. So instead of asking for for Yahweh's own clarification, where are you? What if instead the question is, where are you? As in, do you know where you are? Self-knowledge, self-consciousness. Yeah. In the context of your environment, can you name this? This all of this otherness that informs your sense of location or self. Um, and so, so I, I think, I think that's like such a fascinating element yeah. of the, of the, the Hebrew story of the origins of all of the universe, right? Like we start off, if you look at the narrative arc of the story, we start off with all of the cosmos that is nothing. It's a description of the number zero. That's what Genesis is trying to do by saying the earth is formless and void, trying mm -hmm. to assign a number to something that does not exist. Zero. I have, I have zero of these. Well, if you have zero of them, they don't exist. So what is the, this, what, what are the, yeah. these, right? Right. And, and so it's limitless. It has no boundaries. It's infinitely expanding. And out of this thing, out of this number zero, Yahweh creates and crafts and sculpts this world and spins it and creates the things that are going to inhabit it in order to ensure uh, order in the world. Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, who apparently, and, and this is their first interaction together, right? That's even recorded. Yeah. Is after, is, is eating the fruit. And the first thing we go from this massive, infinite, expansive nothingness in the cosmos to the experience of being naked, of a human being embarrassed of being naked. That's the arc of the story. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. And it, it takes like, it takes like four pages of text to get there. Yes. And, and again, Adam and Eve don't point at each other and say, Hey, you're naked. Put some clothes on. They are embarrassed that they are naked. So they're going, they're, they're actually self-conscious. They're looking at themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Adam and I mean, Adam blames Eve and Eve blames the serpent. So they're pointing at the other, but when it comes to that, that moment of acknowledging their own existence, it happens when they realize they are naked. Yeah. Because when they look, they see the other and go, that's not me. That's not what I look like. That's, that's what the thought is. You see the other and you think that's what the ego does. You see, when you see the other, you think about yourself. It's like, I see Eve and that's not me, right? That's not what my physical form looks like. So what's going on here? And the other part is that the nakedness, the sexuality of it is a big part of it. But the other part is a vulnerability. They look at themselves, right. they look at themselves and go, I'm like exposed to the elements. And this, like, I don't have, I'm not an, and I'm not a rhinoceros. Like 
my like I feel the rhinoceros and I feel me and I'm different. I'm like I could die. Like that rhino over here could kill me. That lion over there could kill me. I got to do something to protect myself. It's like I'm exposed and naked and embarrassed and oh yeah, I'm also defenseless. Like you could cut right through this belly and I would die. And so you know Jonathan Pajot who I love talks about the garments of skin that they put on as like a way to become like the more invulnerable animals they see around them. Like, oh, the that bear, nothing can kill that bear over there. Let me put on a bear skin to protect myself. It's it's like the first, it's the first technology. Like the, the first thing that, the second thing really that happens, the first thing that happens is they, they realize they're naked and they get embarrassed and afraid. And then the second thing that happens is technology. They go, let me find something in the world to add to myself to make me less naked and afraid, to make me less vulnerable. It's and then but and that but that's what God is warning them about. That's why they, they're not supposed to eat of the tree, is because all of a sudden then they just take from the world and start adding to themselves. Once you have the knowledge of your own vulnerability and you see like in two chapters later where technology gets you. Like Cain, you know, kills Abel and then he goes and starts building cities. It's like immediately it goes wrong. And then, you know, Lamech is just this like and I think I think in the in the book of Enoch, it goes into this like a lot. It's just like Adam and Eve put on fur, Cain kills Abel, and then everyone just starts building weapons. Everyone starts making weapons. That's like cities and weapons. It's like walls and weapons. They, they, Adam, you know, the, the first sin, knowledge of good and evil. And then Cain goes, ah, okay, I know what to do now. Kills Abel. And then it's just, they just start building walls and weapons. And that's the rest of human history. It's, it's, it is like a post-apocalyptic world that Cain and Abel are inhabiting. Mm -hmm. So post-fall, at least that's how I, I think of it. So post-fall, when Yahweh says, you can't go back to unconscious, you can't go back to unconsciousness, you can't go back to idyllic ignorance. You ate the, you ate the fruit, you realized you were naked, and now we're going to have to deal with it, right? Um, enter Cain and Abel, and you have immediately conflict between herding herding groups and agricultural groups right so nomadic 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 peoples and settled peoples and yahweh creates the conflict by privileging and saying i like this sacrifice of the animal or what you know i like this sacrifice more than that one i like Abel's sacrifice more than Cain's because mm -hmm. I value this, whatever, whatever resource this is, that's the better one. It's completely arbitrary. According to the text, at least it's, it's kind of capricious. Like it doesn't say why. Yeah. It's like Yahweh is still, again, is still trying to figure out what the rules are, what the terms are. Yahweh is still trying to create some kind of order becoming self-aware in relation to suddenly I've got this problem. I have two different, I have two different sacrifices that are being brought to me. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, 
right? So I've got to differentiate now. I wasn't, it's almost like you can see Yahweh being like, well, I wasn't ready for this. I like that. You know, I'm, I'm going to pick that one. Yeah. Then, then there's conflict immediately between Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel, right? And the, the, the conversation between Yahweh and Cain is wild. They're, again, they're both trying to figure out the rules. Mm-hmm. So Yahweh comes to Cain and, you know, says, we, we've all, we've all heard it, you know, where's your brother? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? You know, I, I don't know. It, but what he's really doing is putting it back on Yahweh and saying, that's not my role in the universe. That's your role in the universe is to know where, to know where your people are. When, you know, when we were expelled from the garden, that wasn't part of the term of terms of the agreement. And then Yahweh, Yahweh makes a pronunciation and, you know, he says, you know, you're going to, again, they're you're expelled. You're out of here. You're going to wander. And this is the why. This is like Mad Max. Cain, Cain is terrified because he says, he describes like wild packs of humans out there mm-hmm. that are going to find him and, and harm him just roving out there in the world. And he can't go, he can't, he can't be sent out alone. And so yeah. Yahweh, you know, puts the mark on his forehead and says, all right, so I'm going to put this on your forehead and everyone will know, don't, you know, don't mess with you. Yah or Cain negotiates with Yahweh and puts the onus back on God. They're, they're going back and forth about who's, who's actually responsible in this new world of being conscious. Mm-hmm. Like from the earliest part of that story, Yahweh puts it on Cain and says, you know, if you just give me the right sacrifice, you, you wouldn't have any reason to we'd be fine. And, you know, it says, Cain, be careful. Sin is lurking outside your tent. It means to have you. And there's this almost like sexual, well, there is a a sexual uh, connotation to that lurking and means to have you. It's, it's meaning to assault and take Cain. Right. Mm -hmm. But Cain just puts it right back on God. And so there's this like grow this, this consciousness, I think as they negotiate to figure out, where are my boundaries of self, right? Where's, how far does my power or control extend? And right. I, I mean, I mean, I, th- I, th- I don't want to spin this too far, too far out away from our topic, Matt, but it's, I think, I think in that conflict, Yahweh and Cain are figuring things out about themselves and what they want. In other words, they're becoming more self-conscious yeah well you can see that to me this looks like this looks like cain it looks like early man and cain as it's as early man's representative struggling to go back to wanting to go back to unconsciousness wanting to go back because unconsciousness was just instinct it was just find food and and make babies it was just eat and procreate it's just animal animal instincts. It's just your dog, right? It's just a dog it's a, or, you know, a wolf, an eagle, whatever. It's just eat and, and replicate. And, you know, so Cain is going, well, what do you expect? Like th- this, this way of my instincts are pretty good. Abel was, Abel was getting in my way and now he's not getting in my way. So what he's like, you, you know, God, you created this place. These are the rules you put, you know, this is on you. Like, what do you expect? You didn't tell me not to do that. Like, these are just my, you gave me these instincts. These, I have instincts 
where would these instincts come from? If they didn't come from you, you created me. I'm just following my instincts. So that's, it's like early man wanting to go back to go back instead of using consciousness to create, to push through the pain of having to share the world with other, instead of having to push through that conflict to create a new unity, the temptation is to go back to the old where I don't feel anything. I keep giving myself light bubbles on my, I get giving myself thumbs up bubbles. But the temptation is to go back to the old unity where I am just one with the world because we're, I'm asleep and I'm just, uh, I'm just as my neurons just fire. This is how they fire. But the other part of this that, that, that you're getting at, what Neumann would say is that these early stories, the earliest stories, and I mean, maybe any story that we tell about God is mostly a projection of what's happening inside of us. And then we project that, that story onto God in some way, shape or form. And so if you're looking at the story from, from Neumann's perspective, you've got the early, whoever's telling these stories initially, whoever's telling the Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel story initially, because we, I mean, we don't know when the stories began. We have some idea when they're written down. We have no idea where they came from. But whoever's telling these stories is projecting themselves onto God. And then it's like inception. And then they're, <laughs> they're, and then they're talking about Cain's, then they're detailing Cain's projections of himself onto God. And so you can imagine who's ever telling, whoever's telling this original Cain and Abel story is thinking, well, looking at two tribes, the herdsmen and the farmers, and going, well, one of these has got to be better. God has to, you know, whoever created this, whoever's in charge around here, I'm sure he favors one or the other. And so even that dichotomy, even that decision of God choosing one over the other, Neumann would say, well, that's a, the, the, whoever's writing that story, whoever's telling that story is projecting that onto God because it's, it, they feel it within themselves. There's a right and a wrong. There's a good and evil. There's a, there's a right way to live and a wrong way to live. Therefore, if God is, is in the business of right and wrong, well, he's probably, I'm sure he's, he likes one better than the other. I'm sure one sacrifice is better than the other. And, and so you've got to take in to consideration that's not to neg negate any of the meaning and the value of the story to say that it's a projection. It's meaningful because it is a projection, because it, it references our experiences and what's happening inside of us. And we project it in our story so that we can engage with it. We couldn't engage with it if we didn't project it. I, I, I don't even know if I don't even know if I can wrap my own head around what I'm saying, but that's what, that's what Neumann is. That's what he, he lays out in his book. Yeah. I, I, I mean, a, a couple of things. One is that Matt, uh, we're talking about projections and that's completely right. I, I, I mean, I think, I think that's accurate. I think that actually makes the most sense. So let's look at Cain and Abel. So Cain, Cain brings grain and the first fruits, Cain's a farmer, right? Abel, 
brings livestock. So Cain is the Cain is agrarian. Abel's nomadic, a nomadic herdsman. Well, let's let's take a look. Um, sorry, I, you'll have to edit this out. I cut I cut all of the the whole water bottle noise. You could hear it. Oh oh yeah. I tried to mute myself, but I don't even know how to mute myself. There's a mute button at the bottom. But anyway, okay, so so Cain, Cain is agrarian, Abel is nomadic. Well, let's look at the authors of the story, Matt. Where are like the early Hebrews living? What is what is their context? They're nomadic. And who are they surrounded by? Agrarian societies. Look at them like wandering in the desert. Yeah. They're constantly othering themselves, comparing themselves over and against these cities that, that they have to contend with. And they're also God's chosen, Yahweh's chosen people. So, so of course, as they write this story, it's going to be written from their own context. Of course, Yahweh prefers the, you know, the, the firstborn calf or what, whatever over, over the grapes from your vineyard because people wandering in the desert don't grow you know, they don't have vineyards, man. Right. So, so of course it's a projection. And I, I think the second thing is that when we understand it that way, when we understand it as people trying to make sense out of, of their human, of their own experience, to figure out how did we get here? This becomes not just the most reasonable, I think, way to read it, but so damn interesting the mm-hmm. least interesting and least helpful way, in my opinion, to read this is to, is as like scientific or historical literature. Um, the whole thing—I mean, it's full of contradictions if you look at it in that in that lens. But if you try to put yourself in the context and interpret what you're reading through these different lenses—in this case, through the lens of consciousness—then you find out it it's, has far more to say about our musings of how we got here than it does about any kind of any kind of absolute truth claim of of the world being created in six days and Yahweh sleeping sleeping on the seventh. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. It well, becomes you... such a rich text. And I like I've never really unpacked it the way that you just the way that you've you've laid out here with consciousness but but it becomes like so much more flexible and pliable and applicable and to to what what my life is like what my experience is i'm here for it man 100 percent. because if you look at scripture really in totality as describing the way reality is Describing the way the world is, describing the, sh- the nature and the structure of reality, as opposed to Scripture describing what God is telling us to make the world, as opposed to what God is telling us to do or how God wants the world to be. If you look at it in, in the sense that it is describing the nature of reality itself, then you can take even the symbol of nomadic herds people and agrarian 
farming societies and you look and you go, well, let's look at agrarian farming societies. They start to centralize as a little group or a little tribe. They put down, they literally put down roots and they grow around this farm. Well, then what happens next? Then they create a little community, then they create a little structure, then they create some guidelines, then, you know, then it builds into this sort of these agreements. Now you've got multiple families and now we have to have some rules and now we have to have some technology. We've got to find a way to get outside water in. We've got to, now we've got to start, okay, we've got some surplus. What do we do with our surplus? Should we sell it? Who should we sell it to? All of a sudden, you start adding these structures. Well, now we have 100 families, and now we've got to make streets, and now we've got to have a government, and and now we have to add more technology. And then you see the Tower of Babel emerge. You've got these agrarian societies who put down roots and develop into cities and then city-states and then at some point, they become so self-sustaining and they become so integrated with technology that they become prideful and they go, you know what? We could just build ourselves a tower all the way to heaven. We could just do this ourselves. We can reach however high we want to reach. If we stay organized and we follow these codes and these laws, and we follow the systems that we have in place, the sky is literally the sky is the limit. And so you've got these nomadic Israelite, Hebrew, Abrahamic, you know, pre-Abrahamic people groups going, that doesn't look right. I don't think that's right. Like, I don't think that's the best way to be in the world. Like, that seems like it, it's too much order. Like, we... You know, we got the story about chaos to order, and then it looks like the Tower of Babel seems like too much order. There's got to be some balance between chaos and order. And all of a sudden, you've got these early people trying to articulate the difference between articulate the warnings of too much chaos and too much order. And you go, holy shit. How did they do that? How did these people from wait from so long ago organize their thoughts like this? And it's not just God going, sheep are better than grapes. Because that is the again, that's the least interesting way to see these stories as God telling people what to do, as opposed to these stories describing the way reality works, the way the world works the way that God has created the world to work. And, and for, for a specific group of people in a specific context at a specific time, right? Yes. But and in Neumann's case, claim is that, is that it transcends those small contexts. Is that right? Yeah. So I would say the greater the myth, the greater the story, the, the more it transcends. And so the more it transcends, the greater the story. And that's why these stories have persisted for so long. And that's why 
the Judeo-Christian narrative has never been overcome by all the other counter narratives because it because it transcends in so many different ways from beyond this it is yes in this specific context specific people specific time and specific language but the 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 universals are so transcendent that it resonates with the way the world works for me and you now yeah well i gun gunpowder and smallpox also helped also helped <laughs> ele- elevate elevate the elevate the myth to you know to to spread spread the uh, judeo christian way of life yeah but i i think but i think one last one last point about you mentioned the tower of babel it's interesting to me that that Yahweh has to send them, has to confuse them and send them out. The idea with the Tower of Babel is that they're going to build a tower to reach God. And apparently, this is a, this is a real threat <laughs> because Yahweh has to actually confuse them and stop the project. Right? If if there's no way they could actually accomplish the thing and get to God then why would Yahweh even be concerned? Yeah. So that's kind of a, that's, that's a part of this, this story that we don't talk about much. And I think it's part of, I would say it's part of this, maybe this arc of Yahweh and human beings becoming self-aware of their limitations and their possibilities, right? It's like Yahweh gets the tower of Babel and he's like, Oh, they might actually do this. I can't, I can't let that happen. Right, yeah. because who am I if they get there? How am I going to differentiate myself from them if they're able to to get up to where I am? So, so and and human beings are realizing I, I might actually be able to. We might actually be able to make it. Why why couldn't we? Right? So if you and so Yahweh has to intervene and and s- dispel them. But if you look at it as if you look at God as the ground of being, the ground of of reality itself. You have the the Hebrew projection of God as telling these as as arbitrarily going in to the city of Babel, confusing them and causing he it had to intervene. God had to personally intervene with this project to bring it to ruin. But again, if you see this story as a tale of the way reality works, as a as the way the world works, and God as the ultimate reality, hubris, pride comes before the fall. When you say, as a pe- there's when a people group says, we have transcended, we can transcend God. We've developed enough cognitive horsepower. To put to do anything we set our minds to, you get the Tower of Babel coming to ruin. You get the Nazi Reich coming to ruin. Empire. The point of the story is empires built on hubris, on pride and technology and human human willpower will implode. They will collapse on themselves because that kind of control can't be. That kind of top-down control is tyranny. 
and tyranny, that kind of top-down control ultimately becomes tyranny every time. And the people, the people, the whole dis- descends into its parts. Yeah, and, the parts and become the whole. Yahweh gets to be a tyrant. And the, yeah, and the, he's the only good tyrant. So he must be the one. He's controlling reality. So if this is reality, then it's him. So whatever happens in reality is is God, and it. But it's just a story of the parts become a whole and then go back to being the parts again. It's this. It's all. It's this cycle of of fine of the, the atomization and collectivization, atomization, collectivization, and they're just describing the way these these things work. And every time things get too collectivized, they're doomed to reatomize and so it it, it it gets weird if you don't look at it like that it gets weird god favors sheep over grapes and he's threatened by these ancient people building towers tall towers like that do, that's weird that doesn't it doesn't but it doesn't do the story justice and it doesn't it doesn't help it's not helpful to us as as humans modern humans to look back and go what do i don't build big towers i guess make my church building simple a simple structure like that's what you have to take out of it if you don't understand what what is the real meaning of of the story yeah i would i would i'd just say one one thing about that is that i think it's in the context of what we've talked about, it's a meaning of the story. It's a possible way to understand the story, right? That we can read into this, it, like other people from other contexts can look into the story and be like, oh shit, here's what's really happening. Or there are other ways to pull meaning out of that story. I think out of that story, beyond the the myth of the emergence of consciousness but there there are, can be truth claims that are being made beyond that that are not it's not an either or it's a both and yeah so that's so the article for me for me as we read the story the article that we use is not the interpretation but an interpretation yeah well now we're into a whole new discussion of inter- yeah. interpreting stories, and yeah, I, I would agree with you. Yeah, there's there's a million ways to interpret every story. So how do we? So can we interpret stories? So I, you know, I if there's a million ways, then there's no ways. I mean, if there's an unlimited number of ways to interpret a story, then that means there's zero ways to interpret a story because none of them work. There, then there is no then then there's no meaning. So. The interpretation has to match up. We can only interpret the stories to the degree that we can match up the story with the way we experience the world. I, Matt, I can't tell if you're making an argument for or against postmodernism. It's both. It's both <laughs> and. <laughs> I'll sign up for that. Yeah, I'm on right. board. We'll do a. We've reached our time limit, but we'll do a. We'll do an episode on postmodernism. Yeah. That's, okay, that'll be point. fun. Because I'm only like. We're only like halfway through the, the chronology of the history of we haven't even gotten into we haven't even got made it to Egypt yet. 
And Egypt is like <laughs> Egypt is like the most powerful mythology of them all. But this, but I, this was fun. Yeah, this was a good one. This was a good one. Yeah. All right, folks, we're gonna wrap it up there. We'll we'll be back. We'll be back next time with episode what whatever number we we arbitrarily agree upon prior to the episode 36 thanks thanks y'all 36 there we go